first service, I put this clock up here, and it stopped right away. <laughs> I looked down halfway through, and I suddenly realized I had no idea where I was in the universe anymore. It was terrible. <laughs> uh, well, we're going to be in 1 John 3 today, so you could find that for yourselves if you want to, because I'm going to sneak into the sermon by... Uh, First, telling you a little bit about some of the different places I've lived in my life. Uh, uh, my family's had sort of a gypsy existence when I was growing up. I went to eight different schools in the 12 years of uh, schooling before college. I started out in Westover, Pennsylvania. Westover, Pennsylvania is in south-central Pennsylvania, right near nothing. <laughs> There are three streets one way and three streets the other. And uh, I was related to almost everybody in this little uh, town. It was great at Halloween. Uh, I got all kinds of candy. Um, And just a great place for a little guy to grow up. Uh, We moved to Erie after that because Mom did not want Dad to uh, work in the coal mines. So we were up there for a while. Uh, It was an economic downturn. Uh, Lots and lots of people lost their jobs. Dad was one of them, so we went back to Westover again. Ended up in Pittsburgh. That uh, ended. We ended up back in Westover again. Uh, Jessup, Maryland, we got down to. and Alexandria. My parents still live there. Virginia Beach. Chattanooga, Tennessee. Uh, Then, I guess, Corvallis, Oregon, actually and Chicago, and then Lawrence, Kansas. Uh, But the most interesting place I've ever lived, uh, many of you maybe already know, is Kiev, Ukraine. We left uh, Lawrence after four years, I think, and moved to Ukraine. And uh, the thing I want to highlight about Ukraine and Kiev uh, in 1992 to 94 when we were there is the incredible inconvenience of life in uh, Kiev, Ukraine. to begin with, uh, Kiev, Ukraine, and now you, your heart finds it hard to believe, but it's filled with foreigners. And they all speak a different language than us. Uh, I don't know why they don't speak English, but they don't. They speak Russian and Ukrainian over there. It seemed like there were little women on buses who were always stopping and coming up to me and asking me questions in Russian. You know, I had no idea what they were asking me. I had to say, I'm sorry, I don't speak Russian. I wish I did. And then they'd sort of smile at me and ask the next person. You know, but I go, what is it about me? They're always asking me questions on this bus here. Uh, Transportation, generally, since I mentioned buses, transportation was unbelievably uh, inconvenient in uh, Ukraine. We'd... To get to church, I remember, you know, you'd start out at your apartment, you'd walk to the bus stop, which could be quite a ways away, you'd wait for the bus, the bus would come, and then there would be this battle to see if you could get on the bus and beat out all these other uh, little old ladies and everybody. And there's a real talent to this, I'm telling you, to get on that bus. You get on the bus, and sitting on a bus is just a dream. <laughs> you'd stand on the bus as you make your way across, and then you get off somewhere, and you transfer to another bus, which is the whole process again. And then you get on the metro, and you go on the metro, and then you get out on another bus, and eventually you get to the church. You know, But this was transportation in Ukraine. And uh, shopping, shopping 
is, uh, was at least, unbelievable. Also, I was in a line one day to buy milk, I remember. And uh, I am a really bright guy, you know, so you never know what I'll do. And I was standing there, and I, I decided after a while, I said, I'm going to time how long it takes them to serve the next person. So I timed it, and then I timed the next person, and then I multiplied by how many people were in front of me. I said, well, I have three hours until I get my milk at this rate, you know. Uh, and that's why everybody brought a book with them to the grocery store. And there were three lines at the grocery store. One line you went through to choose what you wanted. Then you got in another line to pay for what you wanted. Then you got back in another line to get what you had selected and paid for at this point. You know, so it was just, uh, it was a very inconvenient place to live, let alone things like manholes. <laughs> you know, you know what manhole covers are over top of manholes? In Ukraine, there's just manholes. <laughs> and uh, so you just have to watch out. Well, in light of that, believe it or not, that leads us right to our passage in John 3 today. And let's read this. As we look at it, uh, you may not notice it right away, but there's a picture of the kingdom here. And I want you to think to yourself, what is the picture that we've got of the kingdom of God here? Think in your bulletin, it says 11 through 24. I'm going to read 11 and then 16 through 20 for us. Start with 11. It says, this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. And down in 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This, then, is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Well, what's the picture of the kingdom here? Uh, You know, you look at this passage, and it seems to me there are two primary characters. One is there's a king in this kingdom, Jesus, and then there's everybody else, all the citizens uh, in the kingdom here. And what is the king in the kingdom doing? He's laying down his life for everybody else in the kingdom. And then you look at the citizens, and what are they all doing? They're all being just like the king. They're all imitating the king. They're laying down their lives uh, for each other here. And the point of the sermon, point of the, that we're going to get at today, really, is that Uh, The kingdom of God is a very inconvenient place to live. The kingdom of God is a very inconvenient place to live. And if you choose to live in the kingdom, uh, your life is going to be filled with inconveniences. Uh, The heart of this passage is 16. And the beginning is really... uh, uh, the heart of the heart, in a sense. Let's just look at this, and hopefully it's a simple thought, but hopefully it'll sink into our hearts a little bit as we spend some time here. It begins this way. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Now, my question is, what does that mean? 
What does this mean that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us? Uh, I know you think immediately he died for us. And that's certainly true. But I think really in one sense this is a shorthand of sorts. There's much more to it than the fact that Jesus died for us when you think about him laying down his life. And so I just want to walk through a couple of these things with you. Uh, The first thing Jesus did, uh, obviously, in laying down his life for us, was that he moved. Uh, He moved from heaven to earth. I hate to move, by the way. I hate to move. I hope never to move again in my entire life. When we start packing boxes, it's true, I really just fall apart. I just cannot handle packing boxes. Uh, I don't know if you can imagine moving from heaven to earth. <laughs> uh, you know, you have to put all those white robes in storage somewhere. What will you do with all the halos? Decisions. Do you take the angel helpers? Do you leave the angel helpers behind? Well, Jesus moved, it says, from heaven to earth. Uh, And actually, it tells us about that in a couple places in Scripture. Let me just read these for you. You don't have to turn, but Philippians 2, famous passage, verse 6 says, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. It says he he made himself nothing, took on the nature of a servant. And in 2 Corinthians 8, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Both of those are just saying simply, obviously, that when Jesus moved here, it was a big change. Uh, He relocated uh, for our sakes from a place that was very, very nice. And he chose to come here uh, and and suffer all the difficulties and everything that he would have here. And I think it's fascinating that when Jesus moved to earth, And he looked at all the neighborhoods and he knew location, location, location. He chose to move in literally with the poor people. That's just very interesting. Um, When you look at Luke 2 and you read about Jesus' uh, dedication, you've got the record uh, when Mary and Jesus took him to to the temple. It says, when the time of purification came, they took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Uh, And verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, the way Luke says it, it sounds like, yeah, when you dedicate your babies, you bring a pair of doves, you know, or two young pigeons. But that's really not the case. Uh, When you dedicate your baby, you bring a lamb. Everybody knows that. But if you're poor and you can't afford a lamb, This is the alternate uh, sacrifice you can offer. If you can't afford, it's embarrassing, but you bring uh, a couple of birds, basically, and offer them when you dedicate your your baby. And that's what Mary and Joseph did. Uh, They brought their baby 
and they dedicated him with a couple of uh, pigeons. So Jesus could have chosen, you know, another neighborhood, but he chose to live with some poor people. Uh, perhaps a modern equivalent, you know, he moved in um, to a low-income neighborhood, uh, maybe a rundown apartment complex, and his parents probably did not have medical insurance these days. Uh, and what's really interesting is that he never left there. He lived his whole life there. He didn't climb the social ladder. He stayed with the poor people all of his life. Uh, basically, he went where he was needed, not where it was convenient. Uh, and his life, you already know, was focused, it was dedicated to helping other people. That's what he did. Uh, and he did that versus building his own life. Now, Jesus focused, he dedicated his life to helping other people rather than, you know, building his own life. And the last comment on this is simply, this was his daily life. This was not something he did every once in a while. He did this on Monday. This is what he did on Tuesday. He did this on Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. He even did it on the weekends. He didn't take any days off, you know. But Jesus uh, moved into the poor and spent his life there. And goodness knows that is why Jesus is so popular today. I mean, people really like Jesus. They might not like Christians. You know, they might not like Christianity. But everybody likes Jesus. Why? Jesus was a great guy. He was a great person. You know that I uh, spend most of my life with international students, many of whom are not Christians. But, you know, they really like Jesus. Uh, why? Well, because of who he is, you know, what he's like. Uh, and so he laid down his life in a very big sense uh, for us. But he also obviously died. Uh, you know, when you say Jesus laid down his life, well, he died. My question is, why did Jesus die? Why did he die? The answer is, he died because you needed him to die for you. The answer is he died because that is what helping you demanded. If he was really going to help you, if he was going to help all those people he lived with, um, he was going to have to die. And so basically he did what had to be done uh, to help the people. Uh, why did my father uh, leave our family and uh, we were in Jessup, Maryland. He moved down to D.C. and moved into a little apartment with a bunch of other men. And he didn't live with our family anymore. He just sent money home all the time. Why did he do that? Because it's what he had to do to get a job and support us. And so he did it. You know. uh, why does the single mother uh, work two low-paying jobs and uh, work herself to death? It's because that's what she's got to do if she's going to take care of these little children she's uh, supporting without a husband's help. And that is exactly why Jesus died. He died because we needed him to die, because he did what he, he had to do, what we needed him to do ultimately. And here's the, the last part about this that drives me crazy, is that 
he's still doing it. When we say he laid his life down, we always think past tense, but the truth is he's still doing it. Where is he today? Is he having a party somewhere? Is he on a vacation? Where was he uh, when you were having a lot of trouble last year? Uh, was he there helping you? You know, you look back at what your life has been like and the difficulties you've gone through. Where was he when you were going through that? Well, he was right there. And uh, when Tracy Bowersock, this little guy, is in the hospital, where is Jesus going to be? On vacation? No, no. Jesus will be at the hospital, actually. You know, uh, where is he when our marriages are struggling and or when we're really struggling with our children? Uh, the answer is he's right there. He's still there. And he's there even when you're angry at him because you think he's not there. And you look back later and you say, oh, I guess you were there, weren't you? You know, he's still there. His life is still down, in a sense. He laid it down. And that's where it is. And realizing that is a wonderful thing, obviously. It's so incredibly secure to know that Jesus has laid his life down for you. And that's where it's staying. You know, as long as you need help, uh, he is there. Well, that is the, the heart of the passage. But the main message of the passage comes right after that. It says, he laid his life down for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Well, the picture of the citizens of the kingdom, what are they doing? Uh, they're all laying down their lives like Jesus, like the king. Now, do you want to live in this kingdom? It's very inconvenient to live in this kingdom because you've got to keep laying your life down. Uh, you've got to keep giving it up inconveniently for the other people all around you. And the picture is very tangible, isn't it? It's very practical. It's rubber meets the road kind of love for the people around you here. And when I see this, I don't know, what vision comes to your mind? What does this kingdom look like? I see a lot of people sharing things. I see people giving things to each other. I see a lot of people opening their homes, hospitality. I see a lot of eating, a lot of eating here. <laughs> uh, I see a lot of people sitting with other people. Uh, when they were, you know, I see people who are about to go on a vacation and deciding not to go because somebody needs something. You know, I see somebody planning on taping, taking a nap this afternoon and they decide maybe I better do this instead because somebody needs something. Uh, it's real practical. It's real down to earth. And uh, this is the picture all throughout the New Testament. I mean, in Luke 3, John the Baptist, when people came to him and said, what should we do to one little group here? He says a typical thing. He says, well, the man with two tunics should share them with the one who has none. And the one who has food should do the same. 
And in Acts 2, when you have the picture of the first Christians, uh, it says, you know, all the believers were together and they had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. And Bill, I think last week, talked about the Macedonian church, a bunch of very poor people who were Christians who just really wanted to send some money to the Christians in Jerusalem who were going through the famine. Uh, But the church has always been like that. The church has always been people who just practically help, you know, the other people around him. And I've got some things that I just find really interesting from history about the Christian church. This, uh, this was 361 A.D. Okay, Julian had just become emperor of Rome. And he was trying to revive uh, paganism. And he was really frustrated because of the rising popularity of Christianity. And in a letter to a pagan priest that he wrote, here's a, a little snippet. He said, it is disgraceful that while these impious Christians support both their own poor and ours as well, all men see that our people lack aid from us. So, frustrated with the Christians, why? Because they were helping all of the poor in their own group. Everybody seemed to be taken care of, and they were helping everybody else. And uh, the pagan uh, church was not doing it. And then the plagues, I've always been struck by this, what I've read, that during the great plagues uh, of Europe, you know, everybody would flee the city, obviously. But the Christians were known as the people who stayed and kept caring for the people who were dying. That's, That's a fascinating witness. The Christians were the ones who stayed in the city and cared for the dying. Sounds a great deal like Mother Teresa at that point. John Wesley, everybody knows John Wesley, the great preacher uh, of the revival movement. Uh, And this is something you don't hear about John Wesley much, but it's interesting. When John Wesley died, his estate consisted of a coat, (coughs) two silver spoons, and this, despite the fact that he earned as much as 1,400 pounds annually toward the end of his life through the sale of sermons and books. This was possible because he never spent more than 30 pounds a year for his own living, even when his income increased 40-fold. And he wrote uh, this. He said, if I leave behind 10 pounds, you and all mankind must bear witness against me that I lived and died as a thief and a robber. You just don't hear that about John Wesley and his whole understanding of caring for uh, the people around him and what he did practically, the way he lived his life. And since Bill Vogler is not here, and in honor of Bill Vogler, I am going to read something that Jonathan Edwards said, okay? <laughs> Jonathan Edwards was born the same year as Charles, or as, uh, John Wesley. They were contemporaries. And uh, again, you don't perhaps hear Jonathan Edwards uh, talk about this so much, but here's what Edwards wrote about this. That's, um, get ready to squirm, okay? It says, in many cases, we may, by the rules of the gospel, be obliged to give to others when we cannot do it without suffering ourselves. If our neighbor's difficulties and necessities be much greater than our own, and we see that he is not like to be otherwise relieved, we should be willing to suffer with him 
and to take part of his burden on ourselves. Else, how is that rule of bearing one another's burdens fulfilled? If we be never obliged to relieve others' burdens, but when we can do it without burdening ourselves, then how do we bear our neighbor's burdens when we bear no burden at all? Logical question. He's referring, obviously, to Galatians 6.2 that says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And uh, this is a great picture, you know, because when you bear a burden, you, you carry it, right? You, you're down, now you take the burden, when you're, you're standing up, you take the burden, now you're like this, right? <laughs> because you're carrying some of this weight. This is what all us sacrificial husbands do for our wives when we carry their luggage. I just want to say that right now. <laughs> We're bearing their burden. And bearing a burden is different than just sort of steadying the person as they carry the burden, right? <laughs> and it's different than saying, you can do it, I know you can do that, you know. <laughs> when you bear the burden, you take it on yourself. Uh, you bear some of the weight, you bear the cost. It's very inconvenient to bear a burden. And when he is bearing it, it says you take some of the inconvenience of that sickness, you take some of the inconvenience and cost of this difficulty on yourself if you're going to bear somebody else's burden. Uh, and verse 18 addresses this. He says, Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and truth. I love this picture. I love this picture for a couple reasons. It's a picture of everybody bearing each other's concerns or burdens, right? I like it because whenever I am in trouble, I have 900 other people to help me carry it. And that's a great deal. When I am really without a job, or I am struggling with my children, or whatever it is, I have all of you to help me. And I love the picture because I love the idea of living in the group of people where love and mercy and kindness and compassion are the rule of the day. You know, the church is a wonderful place to be because we are dedicated to gentleness and kindness. That's why people like it when they, you know, they like Jesus, they like the church, because it's a great place, goodness knows. But it is challenging. And it gets a little more challenging yet when you look at this passage. Verse 14, he says, you know, this is how we know that we have passed from death to life, because we love our brothers. In verse 19, he says, This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. And verse 17, he sort of flips it around and says, You know, if we have material possessions and see our brothers in need and don't pity him, how can the love of God be in us? Again, this is nothing new. James 2, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? 
In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. That's a challenging statement. And, of course, both of these guys get their uh, ideas from Jesus. And one of his most famous uh, little uh, pictures of the, of the throne of God, really, in the judgment day is in Matthew 25. And I'll just read a couple verses. Jesus says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom that's been prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Uh, Our doing of these things, John is saying, is a test or a confirmation that we are actually in the kingdom. Our doing these acts of love Carrying each other's burdens is a test, a confirmation of whether you and I really are in the kingdom. Now, what does that mean? Does this mean that my doing good deeds gets me into heaven? Does this mean that I earn my salvation by doing good deeds? You could easily read this and think that, goodness knows. But if you read the rest of Scripture, it is very clear that that is not the case. I would always send someone to Romans or Galatians, since that's a place where Paul specifically addresses the question. So I have to read something out of that quickly for us, just to confirm this. Paul, in in, uh, Romans 3.20, in a few verses, let me read this. He says, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law or read doing good deeds. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And I'll just say, Ephesians uh, 2, 8, and 9 really summarize this for us. It says that, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's very clear in Scripture that you are accepted by God because of grace, through your faith, on the basis of Jesus' death on the cross. That is how we come to know the Lord ultimately. Grace, faith, because of Jesus' death. So if this does not mean your good works get you into heaven, uh, what does it mean? Well, John says, to read it again, this is how we know that we have passed from death to life. This, then, is how we know that we belong to the truth. John says this is how we know that we are in the kingdom. It it confirms that we're in kingdom because anybody who walks with Jesus becomes like Jesus. He's a very influential guy. (laughs) And you spend time with him, it is inevitable that you will become like him. 
And so my other question here is, why does John say these things? And I think there are a couple reasons, at least. One is that I think John is reminding us what the normal Christian life looks like. He's reminding us what a normal Christian life looks like. And normal Christian life in the kingdom, inconvenience is normal. Inconvenience is normal. It's not exceptional. Uh, You are constantly given opportunities, listen to this, to choose to be inconvenienced on behalf of all the people around you. And John is reminding us what a normal Christian life looks like. I do think, on the other hand, uh, that this is a self-check. That John is uh, saying you can look at yourself, you can look at others and say, are they in the kingdom? And there should be some evidence in the way uh, they are acting. It's a self-check. It does keep you honest, I think. And uh, third, I think it's an exhortation. I think John uh, says this to guard us. Because I am sure John knows from his own experience exactly what we know, and that is you are constantly tempted to be unbelievably selfish, right? You are constantly tempted to live for you and nothing else. You tend to stray that direction by default. And what he is doing is he's reminding us who we are. And he's reminding us that we are followers of Jesus, we're followers of Jesus, lest you forget. You are following the guy who gave his entire life day by day and still is giving his life away. You're his follower. And it's to guard you and and exhort you, remind you that you are people who lay down your lives All of your people, the people who have come before us were like this. All through history, we have been known for this. And that's what we are. We're people who lay down our lives. And I think also, wonderfully, there's an implicit promise in this thing. And the promise is that you can be like Jesus. You can be like Jesus. I've always wanted to be like Jesus. I thought, what a great job. Walking around Palestine healing people. That is a great job, isn't it? Everybody likes you (laughs) when you do this. And what fun. What fun to go along and find sick children and touch them, you know? Or uh, people whose lives are totally twisted up and come near and have it totally turned around. What a great job. And... You know, he's saying, Len, that is what you're freed to do. I called you to follow me so that you could join me in doing exactly this. This is your purpose in life now, is to go do this. This is your job. You might earn a living as an engineer, but your job is to go give your life away. Help the people around you. It's really, I think it's a picture, like he's saying, okay, here, I'm filling your bag. I'm filling your bag. You know, bring your bag over here. I'm, I'm filling it with money, and I'm filling it with time, and, and I'm putting some knowledge in your bag, uh, and I'm putting some shoes in here, and I'm putting some beds and some talents, 
I'm putting all these things in your bag. Now go give them away. Go give it all away to the people who need it. You know, and have a great time. (laughs) Because great things will happen. The conclusion of all this is that you were the needy person. You were the needy person and Jesus stopped and helped you. (laughs) And you know, the thing is, it was your own dumb fault. You got yourself into this thing. You did not deserve for him to help you, but he did it anyway. You were the needy person and he helped you. And worse, you still are the needy person. (laughs) You still are the needy person. You've had so much stuff in your life. I don't know what is happening this week. And I don't know what will happen this coming week or this next month. But, you know, you are still the needy person. And Jesus is dedicated to helping you. He is going to do what has to be done to take care of you, even when you don't even notice it. And truthfully, a lot of the trouble you're going to get in, and maybe a lot of the trouble you're in, in the words of my own mother, is your own dumb fault. (laughs) I heard that a lot. But Jesus, you know, thankfully, goodness for us, uh, Jesus helps us even when it's our own fault. And we don't deserve for him to help us. But he's still there. And so when you see someone else in need, uh, in the church family, uh, beyond the church family, even your enemy, Jesus says, you know, when you see them in need, uh, don't be afraid. Because you will be afraid. Don't be afraid that it's going to cost you something to help them. Don't uh, run from the need. We often run from other people's burdens because we're afraid of what it's going to take to carry that. That's too big a burden. You know, I can help Harold, but let me see. I'm searching the audience right now. Steve Garlow is too much, you know. (laughs) When you see the need, you know, don't, don't be afraid of the inconvenience. Don't run from the cost, because it will cost you. Uh, but really, what he's saying is embrace that need, embrace that burden, and lay your life down for that person. And it will be inconvenient. Uh, your life, in fact, if you are in the kingdom will be filled with inconvenience because it is inconvenient to help people and carry those burdens. But so I feel like I should wish you a very inconvenient week <laughs> coming up here. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, it's so true. You know we are afraid of carrying the other person's burden because we're wanting to hold on to our money or our rest or our time or our privacy. We run away from other people's burdens 
Lord, help us to be like you, to remember that we're followers of Jesus, not just religious people. That this is the kingdom. Help us remember this is the kingdom. This is where we give our lives away. Help us uh, this week, Lord Jesus, to honor you, to please you by, by doing this. Uh, guide us each, Lord. Protect us in the process, we pray in, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Well, let's stand for the benediction, if you will. And I have a book plug before the benediction. The book is called Ministries of Mercy. It's out on the book rack uh, for sale. Just a great book that deals very practically with this issue. And I want to say that if you read this, you'll notice that this author has shamelessly lifted sections uh, straight out of my sermon and put it in this book. (laughs) But it will be okay. The response to our benediction is, praise be to God, amen. And the benediction, the good word, is from the Lord Jesus. And he simply said, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And all God's people said, praise be to God, amen.